Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Friday, the 17th of September, and if it sounds like my voice is a little bit tired, it's because She's a little bit tired. (laughs) A little bit tired. Fall share was so amazing. God poured forth resources through you that are just extraordinary. We are blown away. Um, If you missed the the close of fall share yesterday afternoon, um, let me just be the first to tell you this morning that we had a really um, extraordinary, unprecedented, I don't have another word for it. Historic. Uh, historic uh, four-day event. So this is the first time um, in in a share event that we've raised over a half a million dollars for the ministry. And so thank you to each and every one. We have some thank yous to say to some folks, extend to some folks um, today who we didn't get to thank because their gifts came in um, after we were able to acknowledge them. So thank you so much to Charles from Madison, Wisconsin, and Jared from St. Paul, Minnesota, Kristen from Cloquet, Cloquet, Cloquet right? yes. mm-hmm. Minnesota, and Beth from Hamilton, North Dakota. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then some of my peeps up in the Fargo, North Dakota area, thank you so much for your generous gift, as well as Amelia from uh, Sioux Falls. We have Stacy from Knoxville, Tennessee. Thank you for listening online and supporting us. Bob and Kelly from Duluth, thank you as well. All right, we're going to do some more thank yous later, but we thought that we would just lead off with that this morning before we turn to the headline news of the day. We're so grateful to God for each and every person who has stepped forward to be a part of the Faith Radio uh, Giving and Support Network. If you missed your opportunity, you know, you can always give online at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, thousands of Haitian migrants displaced by generational poverty and successive natural disasters have made their way to the U.S. southern border through Mexico. So they crossed the border and they are now packed under a bridge. They are, you know, some of the most untenable conditions you can imagine. Authorities in Del Rio, Texas, say more than 10,000 migrants, all of them Haitian, have arrived at the impromptu camp under a bridge in South Texas. Um, Obviously, this sudden influx has presented the Biden administration with a new border emergency at a time when illegal crossings had already reached a 20-year high. So we're going to keep our eye on what's happening there. Let's be praying for, let's be praying for our brothers and sisters along the southern border as they, uh, you know, they seek to meet the needs of these people who are arriving. And certainly let's be praying for our government as they try to figure out, you know, how to not only secure our border and, and keep people safe, but also meet the humanitarian needs of uh, of our neighbors. We are fighting fire with fire in America's Northwest to protect our Sequoia National Forest. That's a story you're going to hear covered today and will probably literally light up the news because it will be uh, visually interesting for people to watch. And then um, here's a headline that's literally out of this world. The Inspiration 4 mission 
is um, is aloft. So today is day two of this SpaceX mission. They are in high orbit around the Earth. The crew of SpaceX Inspiration Four. Um, I'm going to describe them as like tourist astronauts. Amateurs. Well, they're totally amateurs, but they're also <laughs> just kind of tourists, right? Still, by the way, uh, less than 400 miles from home. So even though they're in high orbit, they're still yeah, less than 400 miles from home when you consider really how close that is. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. They're going to spend three days in a capsule that's slightly bigger than a minivan, just to give you a little perspective mm. on how close these four strangers are going to be to one another, doing everything that you would need to do over three days in close proximity with other people who you don't know. There you go. Mm. The four-person crew of SpaceX Inspiration4 raised the number of people in space on Wednesday. It's not, it's not 14 people in space anymore because the um, China's mission already came home on, on Friday. But uh, when... The SpaceX mission was launched, and the four amateur astronauts on Inspiration4 joined the other astronauts in uh, in space at the time. It was the most people that had ever been in space at the same time, set a new record. Um, so who else was in space when SpaceX launched this amateur tourist mission? China was in space. Uh, the Sinchu 12 was carrying three astronauts. They completed a 90-day mission on Friday. And NASA's Expedition 65, which launched in April with a team of seven and are currently at the space station, uh, are in space as well. So just to be clear, two international superpowers known as the United States of America and China were in space at the time. And four tourists, like what a time to be alive. I steal that phrase from my next guest, Nick Pitts. We'll be right back. favorites back today nick pitts he's a fellow at the institute for global engagement he has already been out for a run this morning and he's getting married in 15 days i don't know what greater introduction i could make welcome back sir why happy friday carmen what a great day to be here so excited for the week that you've had and then to be able to talk with you on a friday I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. There you go. There you go. We are, we're excited for you um, with your upcoming nuptials. Um, thanks for joining us on this Friday morning. Let's hit a few of the headlines of the week. Um, let's start with this one. Uh, Megan and Harry are named icons in Times list of the 100 most influential people. What do we know? What do we need to know about Times list of 100 most influential people? And what does it say to you? Uh, that Megan and Harry topped the list? You know, there has always been an infatuation within the American psyche of royalty, even though our, the founders had a great, um, I guess there was a split to a certain degree, but there was always a significant faction that really did um, desire royalty. We've never been able to shake that since our founding. And so there's always been a great affinity and allure of royalty. And so when the royalty wants to become us, 
we can't help but elevate them to a certain degree. And mm. so what we're seeing now is uh, Megan and Harry have made their way over here uh, to the grand old continent. And um, we are uh, increasingly, one, wanting to know more about them. And two, uh, we're going to start hearing more from them with their deal that they signed with Netflix and um, and the various other uh, children's books that Megan is going to be writing. And so they are beginning to use an, uh, an American leverage and exercise their influence that I think is going to be very interesting and new for us in a way that we haven't seen before from the, uh, I, I guess they don't identify as British royalty anymore, but now they really are a unique type of American royalty. Absolutely. I do think it's a, a fascinating. I think that the the term power couple is being redefined by them in a in a really interesting way. I think the word uh, influential, uh, you know, time making a list of a hundred most influential people. I thought the word influence was a good one to elevate. Uh, do you remember when you know time used to have the man of the year? That's a thing of the past. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, you know what? You know what's fascinating to me, especially just with my millennial ears when I hear that. You know, there's a delineation that has to be made between a, a person that has influence with, say, uh, in the I'll say I'll uh, differentiate between the real world and the cyber world. Right? We see these influencers on Instagram and various other social media entities, and they have a lot of people that are following after them. But I do wonder if those people online are going to translate in person to actually do certain things, hear stories about how these individuals are, are, are trying to peddle these particular products or certain things. And there's not there's not a translation that's happening between what's happening in cyberland and what's happening in the real world. Well, when you see a Megan and Harry that you're starting to see this kind of influence that isn't just they have a large following online, but also they have a large following and they're very influential in the real world when it comes to product decisions, when it comes to garnering people's attention over particular topics, they do level a type of influence that is unique and that is very different than simply just having a large presence online and being a quote unquote influencer. Yeah, I think that those social media influencers, so much of that is just commercial marketing. It's just a new, it's a new advertising scheme. And, yeah. uh, and, and Harry and Megan are a different variety of influencer for sure. I think that's a really helpful uh, distinction to make. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Nick Pitts in just a moment. I'm going to have him explain to me who RuPaul is. Who is RuPaul? And what does it mean that RuPaul now has a namesake or is a namesake? Oh, my goodness. All right, that's up next. Continuing my conversation with Nick Pitts. You can find him on Twitter at JNickPitts. You can also find him at the Institute for Global Engagement. Um, Nick, you are of, uh, of a generation other than my own, and so I felt like you would be a really good person that I could ask this question to and not be embarrassed that I don't know. Who is RuPaul, and why does CNN care so much about him that, um, you know, we want to know that a an Australian fly species has now been named after RuPaul? You know, uh, as the great air, band Aerosmith said, dude looks like a lady 
and he's meaning to do that. Um, so RuPaul really uh, hit the scene in the early 1990s, was a fixture in the drag. <laughs> Wait a second. Is Paul <laughs> yeah, back gonna, up on this here. Back up there for just a second because Paul and I are both silent, <laughs> silent laughing, and other people just snorted their coffee out their nose. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, thanks you know, for saying you know, the quiet part out loud, Nick. Thanks uh, for saying know, the quiet part out loud. There any, you go. Anything I can do, anything <laughs> I can do. You know, I'm always here to uh, make things a little bit more awkward. So, um, okay, yes, Ru- RuPaul know. is a proud drag queen oh she's totally proud she's very proud of it uh you know at the very end of the day like that's how she got her beginnings it was in the early 90s uh she was see a fixture in the drag world um in new york city and then eventually she was elevated and got her own talk show on vh1 the rupaul show uh had over 100 episodes and then beginning uh appearing in over 14 uh different studio albums and uh has just become a very much a fixture and an icon within the drag world to the extent that you can't track RuPaul's um, the the increase or the the growth of the drag um, population um, because of RuPaul, but you do see this growth. I mean, I was doing some research, and um, the U.S. was home to approximately about 500 drag queens in the 1960s, and today there's upwards of 50,000 that gathered for a recent drag con conference. And essentially what uh, what drag queen, when you do drag, I, I guess for your listeners, essentially it's just uh, it's accentuating particular female qualities and and doing it from a male uh, perspective to exaggerate the differences in that. And so RuPaul has very much become a fixture within the LGBTQI movement, just an icon, a very to Taylor, back to last segment, a very much an influential person. And so now that her influence transcends simply drag world, but now is reaching into um, science and the naming after a fly species. <laughs> so it's a what a time to be alive. My goodness gracious that we're naming uh, insects after influential drag leaders. Yeah, what a time to be alive um, indeed. All right, let's do a little, I mean, not that that's not a serious headline, but let's um, let's spend a little time here with a serious headline or in a serious headline. Um, I was looking at a couple of different uh, articles, one from Pew Research and then another one from um, from Deseret, and, and that one is more commentary. The, the first from Pew is, uh, is sort of the, the fact tank look at who and what is an evangelical in America today. Can you just talk with us a little bit about what we're saying about ourselves as American evangelicals uh, and then how how people are really, you know, frankly, more identified with politics they are than they are today with religion? Completely agree. So let's there's if there's three things your listeners can take from the Pew study, these are three huge trends that we're beginning to see. One is the fact that there's a super identity that's beginning to identify us. That's what Lillian Mason has uh, wrote in her research. So the the stat that really pops out from Pew says that among all white adults who participated in both the 2016 and 2020 surveys, 25 percent described them as born again or evangelical Protestants in 2016 and 20. 19, 
uh, area in 2020, 29%. So there was a there was a 4% increase in individuals who, because their super identity, politics is now the primary identity that we have here in the U.S., it draws lower identities down, which would be evangelical or born again. And so that's very much a switch. It used to be that, or, is, or what we know to be true, my primary identity is a child of God, not a conservative or a liberal. And so we're seeing super identity. The second is the halo effect. These are individuals that when they talk to researchers, they're wanting to identify themselves as more appealing and desirable. And we're starting to see individuals begin to describe themselves as born again and evangelical in greater number because it, it puts them in a more desirable fashion when they're talking with researchers that are a part of this Trump phenomenon. So that's the second piece that we're seeing. And then the third piece of which I thought was so illuminating, which I, I'm absolutely positive that so many listeners understand, is that there was a significant shift between individuals that didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but did vote for him in 2020. There were an additional 18% of individuals that were conservative, uh, that were evangelical or born again, that were Trump converts that made the transition from 2016 to 2020. And this is illuminating this idea of personality versus policy. Individuals in 2016 were so turned off, I would argue that they were so turned off against his personality and they couldn't trust his policy to the extent that they just didn't vote for him. And now in 2020, when they saw his policy was was substantive and, and thoroughly vetted by a very conservative administration, they were willing to put down and de-elevate his personality and, and vote for him because of the policies that he was advancing. Yeah, I think it's research that people should read. I think you should go to pewresearch.org um, and you should you should read this research. Um, more, I'm going to read the read the title here. More white Americans adopted than shed evangelical label during Trump presidency, especially his supporters. It's a fascinating look um, into the mirror, into the mirror for you know for folks who self-identify as evangelical and or folks who. Um, voted for President Trump in 2016 and or in 2020. It is a really interesting look in the mirror. And I think it is, I think it helps us understand ourselves as a people and what's going on in the culture. And it reinforces for me, Nick, that anytime anyone uses the term evangelical or evangelical to self-identify or to identify others, I have to stop them and ask what they mean. I absolutely now have to stop and ask, what do you mean by that? Uh, positively or negatively. I mean, if they're using the term euphemistically or as a dysphemism, I can't get out dysphemistically this morning. Um, Too many syllables today on the day after share. Whichever way they're using it, I need to understand what they mean when they use the term. Oh, yeah, completely agree. Uh, Evangelical is no longer considered just simply a religious term now to identify individuals that uh, follow after Jesus, believe the Bible to be inerrant and believe uh, Jesus to be coming back or infallible word of God. Now it's simply a political voting block. Interesting. All right. I um, I want you to comment on the fact that there was a balloon that caused a major blackout in Germany. I don't want to not have the opportunity to cover this important story. 
Yeah, uh, you know, uh, essentially the people in the balloon, um, and unfortunately the people in Germany, the people in the balloon didn't want to miss a thing similar to Aerosmith, and unfortunately the people in Germany did miss a thing due to the blackout. Okay, so, so it was like, like, oh, it to... wasn't like a balloon that uh, that that a kid like released, a helium balloon that a kid like released on the ground. It wasn't like on the foil balloon that I buy at like the party store. It was like a hot air balloon. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Can you tell I... that I didn't read the whole thing? I'm so so sorry. From, a, from what I understand, yeah. So uh, essentially what we're saying is I'm trying to bring it back to some Aerosmith line to, <laughs> to circle it all back, but I guess I'm just going to have to dream on because that's not happening. <laughs> all right. Everybody wants to, uh, everybody wants to get um, <laughs> off the ground somewhere today, apparently. All right, oh. Nick, thanks for helping us get off the ground this morning, get the show off the ground. We love you. Blessings on your upcoming nuptials. Um, thank you so much for joining us. As always, you can guys can find Nick online at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can also find him on Twitter at J Nick Pitts. Bless you, my friend. Thanks so much, coming Y'all have a great day. You too. We'll be right back. The thank you uh, ticker tape parade continues this morning for all of those of you who who gave after um, we went off the air during fall share. But you guys so faithfully still came forward and and gave and did your part. So I want to say thank you this morning to Jamie from Cottage Grove, Wisconsin. Jamie says God is so great. Amen. I want to say thank you to Elizabeth and Lee from Renschel, Minnesota. Elizabeth um, came forward with a $40 a month gift saying I can't thank you enough for the great teaching and encouragement over the years. My husband and I really appreciate your ministry. And so then the two, the, the two of them then turned around and <laughs> made a one-time gift as well. They had so it on. I love thank that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And then another friend in Northfield, Minnesota, coming forward with a very generous one-time gift. And again, all of these folks joined us at MyFaithRadio.com and did their part so you can still participate as well. Also, we heard from Dina from Bloomfield, Connecticut. She said, I love, just love, love, love Faith Radio. And she did so with a very generous gift. Thank you. Marie from Verona, New Jersey, came on as well. Thank, Thank you, you Marie. with your generous gift. And Tamara from LaPointe City, Iowa. Or LaPorte City, Iowa, pardon me. But to thank you for your generous gift, too. So one of the things, Paul, that I'm noting here is so many folks um, sharing with us their prayer concerns. Mm-hmm. Prayer concerns for um, for jobs, for God to reveal his will and his purpose, um, for life, for direction in every area of life. Prayers for marriage, prayers for children, prayers for grandchildren, prayers for healing. And so um, let me lift up those prayers as we thank God this morning for what he is doing in and through the Faith Radio family. Holy God, by your tender mercies, address the concerns that are raised by each and every one of these sweet brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to lift up Tamara's concerns uh, just very specifically now. Prayers for Cindy, who has cancer. Prayers for a mom with dementia. Prayers for a a daughter um, living for the next buzz. Prayers for a son awaiting a trial. Prayers for those who are in jail this morning. Thanking Jesus in the midst of it. Father God, in your tender mercies, reach out by the power of your Holy Spirit to come alongside those who feel unseen or unworthy 
or doing a job today that they feel is undignified. Father, grant to each of us the grace to live this day in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Dan DeWitt joins us next. We love to catch up with Dan and cover what he's got in the Weekend Worldview Reader at Theolate.com. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Technology has an amazing way of influencing teens, doesn't it? Whether it's the internet, a tweet, a podcast, a YouTube video, or a text, kids are exposed to more ideas than ever before. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. The flow of information and the increase of data won't stop in the future. Our kids will never be less exposed in the days ahead. And since teens will always behave like teens and the information will keep pouring in, moms and dads need to shift parenting styles and keep up with the times. So mom and dad, don't fight the trend. Go with the flow and make sure these cultural influences don't overshadow your effort to raise healthy and happy kids. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. You can find everything we're talking about today at theolatte.com in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. Dan, welcome back. Carmen, it's great to be back. Good morning. Good morning. All right. My favorite thing in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader is uh, the inevitability of a watcher. Who is the watcher and why are we talking about the watcher today? Well, for people who are Marvel kind of nerds or who have children who are really into Marvel, they'll be familiar with The Watcher as a new um, character, actually not new, but a new series with Marvel um, that's on Disney Plus streaming. And um, Marvel just keeps pumping out all these new shows. It's great, but in some ways it's a bit overwhelming. So I think it was Barnabas Piper who recently put on Twitter that Marvel, like their new series, went from feeling like a treat to feeling like homework <laughs> because there's <laughs> so many of them and they're kind of interconnected. And so in this new series, it's called What If? And Marvel's taking like these old stories that people are really familiar with and adding a twist to them. And the way they're doing that, they're saying, you know, there's kind of this um, parallel multiverse kind of thing going on. There are other realities beyond just the Marvel universe that we're familiar with. And what if in another universe, what if Captain America, um, instead of being Steve Rogers, the guy who you know became Captain America in the original show, what if it was actually Agent Peggy Carter, who's the female that stars alongside um, the character of Steve Rogers? And so, and she's British, so that causes a problem because it's not Captain America, it's not like Captain Britannica. And instead of the American flag on, you know, Captain America's shield, it's you know the British flag. Which how unbelievable is that? And so they have all these kind of like bizarre things going on in different universes. But in order to tell the story, they need a character who sees all of it. And that is the Watcher. 
So the Watcher is a, it goes back in Marvel history. Uh, Marvel at an earlier time in one of their comic books created a series of people. The oldest um, species in the Marvel universe are the Watchers. They're divine beings who are supposed to just watch and not interact. And so I wrote this article to say, you know, isn't it interesting that you can't get away from the need for someone who sees the whole show to tell the story. And these things often bring us right back face to face with our need for something like God. When you ask um, the what if question, um, I'm, I'm taken to in my mind a, a Jeremiah Johnston book. I'm trying to remember. I think it was called Unimaginable. And it's, it's all mm. about like what would the world be like if Christ had never come, like without Christianity, the what the what if of the entire narrative, if God had never initiated a redemptive arc. And so I think that when I mean, you know, the whole idea of a watcher, right, it's inevitable, right there. So talk, you could talk about that here for a moment yeah. as well, right? Because I think that, you know, I, or, or I guess the inevitability of the watcher, it leads me, you know, to the whole uh, Santa Claus is t- coming to town song, which is right? A perversion of the gospel. Um, and so, you know, talk with us about that, the inevitability of a watcher. Like we, we, we recognize, we acknowledge that somebody's watching. Yeah. You know, it, it, in some ways, you know, it, uh, you could kind of boil every worldview down into either, I think I saw for one person do oneism or twoism, you know, everything is either all one, the material universe is all that exists, or there's something outside of the material universe. And so I, I don't want to present this as though some people don't seriously consider atheism, that there is no watcher. Um, but I, I think that there there are problems with that, and we could talk about those other days, and we've talked about it, you know, in different ways in, in previous programs. Um, but what we see here is to tell the kind of story and have some kind of coherent meaning to this uh, multiverse, you need someone who sees everything. And what it reminds me of is the the old parable where you have people, blind people standing around an elephant, and the parable is given to try and talk about that there are many ways to know God. And so one person's feeling the elephant's ear and it's floppy and they say, God's, you know, um, like this and other people's feeling the um, elephant's leg and they say, God's like a tree and someone's feeling the leg or the, or the tail or the tusk or something like that. And so you have these different perspectives and they're all, they're all true in a certain way. And the parable's supposed to teach something like there are different ways to see God. The problem with that parable is you have someone telling the parable, and they see the whole elephant. Mm-hmm. And so that parable in itself shows, one, the, the problem with that I- ideology, that there are multiple ways to God, but also exposes the reality. We need someone who sees the whole show. And in watching this Marvel program, I'm reminded of that, that we need someone who sees the entire show, but we need more than that. We need more than a watcher, someone who's kind of passively observing, but someone who will... Um, interact and interrupt the show, or, or as I put in the article, that Jesus enters the human theater for the defining act. And even though it feels like we're living in a bit of an intermission right now, Christians can be certain of the fact he'll be back. He'll be back. Amen. All right, Dan DeWitt and I are going to continue our conversation about other things posted in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader, which you can find at theolatte.com. We'll be right back. You 
are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. My guest is Dan DeWitt. He blogs regularly at theolatte.com, and he posts something each week called the Weekend Worldview Reader. If you scroll down the Weekend Worldview Reader, you will find things that Dan has written. We've just covered one of those, the inevitability of a watcher. Uh, We're going to talk about something else that he has posted as well about the new atheist and how old they are and where they've gone. But Dan also um, gives us uh, what I will describe as a curated list of articles to read uh, and a book recommendation and then always a video as well. So the book and the video this week are Tim Keller. Some of the articles featured here, most uh, most adult U.S. Christians don't believe the Holy Spirit is real. That might be an interesting thing for you to consider. One about selective empathy. I mean, on and on and on. Lots of great stuff here at theolatte.com. Dan, let's um, let's talk about how old are the new atheists and where have they gone? Yeah, you know, in reflecting on 9-11, and I, I, it had been a few years since I had watched a documentary, and it's just, it's hard to watch. And, but with the, this being the 20-year um, commemoration to remember it, I, I really felt like compelled <laughs> to turn on the History Channel Saturday night. So April and I sat there and watched it, and um, and we're, we were moved again just by the the heroism of that day, um, the uh, thinking about the victims and their families, but then also just the courage that was displayed. But in reflecting on that after 9-11, you know, I, I remember the a new movement that came out of um, the ashes of that day, as it were, and that was what became known as the New Atheist. And so shortly after 9-11, Sam Harris, who was the first um, to the press on this, that an atheist, he has a PhD in neuroscience, he wrote a book called The End of Faith, and he really tied religious belief in general, he connected it to um, religious extremism, the kind of acts that would lead to the, the events of 9-11, and he says if you want to get rid of the extremists, you need to get rid of the moderates, and so we need to get rid of religion altogether. And that was just followed by a number of guys that most people came to know, and since then that a lot of people have come to forget, like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, who's a philosopher, and the late Christopher Hitchens. And so I I began thinking about this last week, you know, really, that was a new movement that caught so much steam. And I remember I used to lead a campus ministry, like everybody was talking about these guys, Mm -hmm. but they're not around that much anymore. They're hard to find. And so they're the new movement, the new atheists. They're about 20 years old, and they've went off to college, and they didn't even, uh, you know, leave us a goodbye note. Do you think that um, part of the challenge is that young people who don't believe in God don't really take seriously those who do believe in God? Like, they're, they're almost dismissive of the claim versus thinking that it's worthy of arguing about. Yeah, I, I think that, that there are certainly people who fit that bill, um, but it, in in some ways, I think the new atheists, they certainly kind of um, nurtured that and encouraged that kind of sentiment that, like, people will um, just dismiss those who believe in God. And Richard Dawkins would often say, you know, you should just see them as, like, stupid or something like that. But what seems to have happened in some ways, the new atheists did a fa- us a favor in that they were so angry and so— um, it, at times very much irrational in, in not being able to, as you described, have a real meaningful conversation, that it, what I've seen is people have kind of moved beyond that to where they really want to have kind of a friendly dialogue. 
but at times it means it's hard to know where people stand. Mm -hmm. It used to be when I would speak at a college event, an outreach event, that the Q&A time would be kind of hostile. But anymore, even at a secular campus, um, sometimes it's hard to gauge if a student's a Christian or not because their questions are just more kind and less kind of loaded. Um, I find that asking questions is essential. It's an essential skill. Um, I, it's less about me being prepared to respond and more about me mm. really listening um, and allowing a person time to wander around in an idea that they haven't even ever considered. Yeah. And sometimes we, you know, we imagine, well, they've already made up their mind. And so what I really need to do is be prepared to confront them, you know, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and they haven't made up their mind. They don't even know what they think. They haven't even explored the option of the reality of the God who is. They don't know. They don't know his character. They don't know his history. They don't know the Bible. Um, and so shame on me for not being patient and asking probing questions mm-hmm. and then giving that other person time to wander around um, in the idea. And and that's not a that is not a quick one off conversation. No. No, absolutely not. And I, I think that the best kind of venue for evangelism is the context of a committed long term relationship. And we don't always have the benefit of that. I mean, sometimes God, you know, sits us down next to someone on an airplane, as it were, you know, to where we'd have this limited amount of time. Um but I think sometimes we live as though those are our only opportunities, and that's kind of what we prepare for is this very brief encounter, um, when really I think what God's calling us into are these intentional relationships where you can have a lot of back and forth. I, I have some atheist friends who over the years we've read books together. They get to pick a book. I get to pick a book. And those are really meaningful conver- conversations. And like you said, you have to give people room to process And um, I'm reminded of what Francis Schaeffer said, that often we build kind of a roof over our head to protect us from the things about our worldview that don't line up with reality, to protect us from the the kind of the pressure of the world that's demanding an explanation. And Schaeffer said what we should try and do in apologetics is remove the roof out (laughs) from over their head to where they feel the full pressure of their, their view of reality. And you can't do that quickly. That's a long process. All right, you pick a book and I'll pick a book. I love that approach. What would be the book you might pick this week or booklet? Um, oh, you mean for the Weekend Worldview Reader? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just say, I'll, before I mention the Tim Keller book, which is great, by the way, um, usually when I would get to pick a book, I would almost always pick a book by an atheist, and they would always be surprised by that. And so I would find something that I felt like was a really honest depiction of what atheism is. And um, But... This week for the Weekend Worldview Reader, I have picked Tim Keller's little booklet, How to Reach the West Again, and then I posted a video, um, which is basically the content for this book. Um, he gave the a address at, I believe it was Gordon Conwell, and um, so the book and the video go together, and you could read this little booklet in less than an hour, but it is so good, and I, I have a colleague who's a missiologist. He writes about how to reach different cultures. And he's writing a book right now on this topic. And he said, you know, Tim Keller can do in a booklet that's 40 pages long what he's trying to do in, in a in a full-scale book that's, you know, going to be 60,000 words. So um, it's that good and that helpful. I love that. All right. So I'm going to encourage you guys to check out what Dan has posted on this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. You can find it all at theolatte.com. 
com. Dan, as always, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your um, being here with us. Blessings on you as you bless students on this day and this weekend. We appreciate it, man. Thanks, Carmen. Take care. You too. We'll be right back. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. <laughs> We're playing that because it's Constitution Day. Yep. <laughs> it's Constitution Day. Um, so we formed a more perfect union. We sought to form a more perfect union. We sought to do it to establish justice and to provide for tranquility. I want you to think about that. Tranquility is peace. I want you to think about the way that the Constitution of the United States provides for a way for you and I to live together in peace, in a society of mutual justice. And we use the terms peace and justice when we use the idea of a more perfect union. For those of us operating out of a Christian worldview, those, um, those ideas have deep, significant meaning for us. When you and I think of a more perfect union, we are talking about the union of the Spirit and, yes, the bond of peace that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. There is a reunion that takes place between humanity and God because of the reconciling work of Christ upon the cross. Now, that is not what the framers of the Constitution were necessarily talking about. But from a Christian worldview, I bring the mind of Christ to bear on Constitution Day. And I can talk about it that way, right? Um, In the same way, uh, when we talk about justice, I need to be prepared to describe what I mean when I use that term. And what it means for justice to roll down and what it means to um, live in view of a God who is ultimately just. And what does it look like for God's justice um, to take place here on earth now as it does in heaven? What does that look like? And when we talk about um, peace, we talk about tranquility. I want you to just ask yourself, is there any possibility of peace without Jesus? I mean, you and I are possessed of a peace which passes all understanding because we have a peace with God that comes through Christ Jesus. And therefore, we can be at peace with ourselves and we can be at peace with others. The world would have us seek to be at peace with others without ever being at peace with ourselves or without being at peace with God. And that's that's a perversion of the order of things. So let me encourage you today to seek God. And allow him through Christ to grant you the very peace which passes understanding that you would be a person possessed of peace. That in turn you could then be a peacemaker with others, living in tranquility. And that you would be not only a person who has received the atoning work of of God in Christ on your behalf and therefore God's justice has been satisfied for you, but that you would be a person who wants to see the good justice of God worked out in human realities for the most vulnerable, for those at most risk, for those who cannot speak for themselves. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next on this Constitution Day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.